Hello and welcome to Geek Sweat. My name is Stephen and this week we'll be going back to my horror from around the world in terror, terror. Um, today we'll be in the United States of America, everyone's favorite country. Um, okay. I think so. No one's going to disagree. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm here with uh, Trevor. Okay. Howdy. And I'm also here with Dominic. Hello, Dominic. Nice to be here again. Oh, good, good. I'm glad you feel nice to be here. So I'm going to start with um, a little question for you both. With who links directors such as Francis Ford Coppola, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, Jonathan Demme. Is it Demme or Dem? Dem. Dem, okay. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, Joe Dante, John Sayles and James Cameron. And also actors like Peter Fonda, Jack Nicholson. Dennis Hopper, Bruce Stern, Sylvester Stallone, Diane Ladd, and William Shatner. I'm guessing it's a director. It is, yes, yes. I haven't got a clue. Okay, Dom, do you know? I do know this. You do. This would be the one, the only Roger Corman. Yes, these are all directors or uh, actors who have all helped, been helped along in their career by Mr. Roger Corman. Uh, if you don't know much about Roger Corman, he was born in 1926 and he is still alive. So that's pretty cool. 95 years old. Um, he's very famous as, um, well, he's, he's launched so many careers of different people, but he's also um, eked out his own career, not only as a, as a director, but a producer and a writer. He's kind of a, um, he likes to have his fingers in all the pies. And he's probably more f- most famous, I would say, for his adaptations of uh, Poe, um, Edgar Allan Poe stories, which he, I think he did five in all, although a couple of them have kind of been uh, uh, mixed up with H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, stories to, um, to kind of uh, give them a new twist. Um, so the first film we... Um, we we're going to talk about is the mask of the red death um the mask of the red death i think is fantastic it stars um uh vincent price playing a proper evil person in this sometimes with vincent price he plays kind of evil people but they're also kind of sympathetic and weak and then other times he plays heroes but i like him best when he just plays proper villains and this is what he does in the mask of the red death um uh trevor yeah. did you enjoy the mask of the red death uh, the Mask of Red Death um, is old classic. Uh, I think Vincent Price is um, just reliably good at horror and um, he's very theatrical and camp. So just having him in any type of movie is just uh, wonderful to see. But the actual story, it, particularly its uh, torture elements mm-hmm. and the way the exposition flows in terms of how bad the main character has been for the local village. Yeah. I think it's very clever. So it's, um, it's definitely one that I liked watching. I think when I was younger and I saw it the first time around as a BBC late night horror, when it was only like four or five terrestrial channels. Yeah. Um, yeah. It scared the living daylights out of me. So the mask of the red death is about, um, is about a guy who kind of rules this, this small village and he, he's really horrible to them. Um, um, he lives kind of in his castle and he's got loads of friends and they have mask balls and, they're all very, uh, yeah, I mean, you could have, um, uh, so it could uh, parallels with today, maybe, with the kind of the Boris Johnson story. They're kind of partying away in their villa, in their big house while 
everyone else suffers from the Black Death, which is rampaging through the. Yeah, I can see. I can see the uh, parallels there. <laughs> There's probably a bit of a a bit of a Vladimir Putin uh, kind of um, a ruling with an iron fist yeah, going on as yeah, well. And yeah, and he's a cruel ruler. And he kind of he kidnaps Paul McCartney's um, girlfriend, um, Jane Asher. <laughs> At and that's in real life. That's not the story. No, no, no. Paul McCartney is not in this film. Yeah. Um, but at the time he was, she was going out with um, Paul McCartney and he kidnaps her and brings her to the castle. And then it's about her, her um, lover and her father trying to get her back. Um, Dominic, I, I think you're a big fan of this film, aren't you? I am a big fan of this film. I actually saw it for the first time in an English class. Uh, oh, my really? English teacher showed okay. it to the class. I think we were 13, so that would have been considered highly inappropriate these days. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, that's the kind of stuff that used to fly back in the 90s. And yeah, I was blown away by it then. You know, just the visual richness of the film, the colours. Yeah, I mean, that that is a thing that's very striking about Masquerade Death is the use of colours. It was, I think the cinematographer on Masquerade Death is Nicholas Rogue, who went on to have quite a career himself with films such as... Um, was it? I saw the Australian one called. Um, don't look now is the one that everyone remembers. Oh yeah, don't look now. And then there's also bad timing. Um, a number of films that he made in the. Bad fell to earth, of course. Yeah, and um, he's the cinematographer on this uh, on Masquerade Red Death. Um, what? Um, oh, neither of you. <laughs> okay. Um, do you? F- so. Uh, Adapting Poe can be quite a challenge because um, his stories are very short, so you need to, you know, he, he wrote, he, he did write longer prose things, but, but mainly he dealt in short stories, so there has to be a kind of need to add to it. How do you think um, Mask of the Red Death stands up as a Poe adaptation? Are you familiar with Poe? To be honest, that wasn't on my like English literature curriculum when I was growing up. And okay. I just somehow managed to just live with avoiding um, Edgar Allan Poe. Um, I think, did he do the, the Night Watchman? That one as well. No. Uh, the Watchman, the one with going into the tunnel. What's the, what am I thinking the of? Watchman going into the tunnel. Uh, it's about a guy on a train going into a tunnel and it's supposed to be about a portent for death. Oh, I don't, I don't, not sure what you mean. I might have got myself mistaken. <laughs> but yeah, that, that probably shows as much as my Edgar Allan Poe knowledge. I think there was one that about a raven, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you might, I mean, younger people might remember it. I mean, not that younger to be f- yeah. thinking about it. But the Simpsons episode where they did a adaptation of the raven yeah. with Bart as the raven and Homer as the um, uh, narrator. Because I think I saw a John Cusack film uh, based on the adaptation of the raven. But yeah. Okay. okay. Moody stuff. Um, it's. I mean, Roger Corman is known for being able to bring in films on budget, on time. That's his kind of great superpower, I think, and that's why he's always trusted to make films because you know he didn't screw it up. He didn't ask for more. He didn't. He knew he could make films with a budget. He can make films without a budget. He's very adaptable. Um, but I, th- I think he's very proud of the Mask of Red Death. I think it's one of his. Favorite would um, he he said himself that he always felt the Mask of the Red Death and the Fall of the House of Usher were his two best Poe stories. Although to me, the House of Usher is always just about a man with a headache. And <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, 
there, is there any notable performances you saw in um, Mask of Red Death? Um, I was kind of interested in the the village and the yep. noblemen, as it were, because okay. when you actually watch this film, um, in the beginning, there is this kind of element of you get to see the poor people in the village. And uh, I think there's a, uh, I think the, one of the opening scenes is like his carriage is being brought into the village and it's like yeah, a yeah. baby just squatting in the middle of the path. And it's kind of like... Um, the carriage does this like really near miss as a stunt, but obviously it's supposed to be collected to show that this guy doesn't worry about um, his uh, townspeople. Yeah. And it was kind of like, wow, that was like a really dangerous thing to do in the beginning. And then it's kind of interesting that escalates into a little bit of a back and forth with the villagers so that the soldiers who work for um, the nobleman played by Vincent Price, he ends up making one of the village's daughters choose between her father and her lover to kind of yeah. get killed. So it's a, it was very, it doesn't really give you time to breathe or think. And there's always, and it's already shrouded in a sense of mystery. Cause I think there's a cloaked character who's by a tree at the beginning. Yes, so there's yeah. a few red herrings that need to be answered. So it, it kept me intrigued for sure. How, how, how did you read the guy in the red? Um, I, I naturally, I just thought that's the Grim Reaper, uh, yeah. not necessarily the devil, which I think there was more of a satanic vibe in the Mask of Red Death than a Grim Reaper comes to collect souls. Yeah. But um, I think the, the there was this kind of understanding that there was a, a sense of witchcraft and sorcery going on uh, to the point, which is exampled in when uh, one of one of the, um, when he's in the castle entertaining the noble people, uh, he asked them to act and behave like beasts. Yeah, yeah. And it's something that kind of comes natural to people, uh, obviously because the beasts acting as they were in nature, going back to their primal um, feelings and emotions shows that they're not very far evolved and also that they were expendable, yeah. but also that they were in some kind of spell casting mode. So it's like if you were in the castle, you were corrupted, not just if you were in the castle you, because you was rich. And there was an interesting scene in it. Um, I'm not sure if this is a bit of a spoiler, but um, one of the noble, basically there's a plague going on and the castle's housing all of the, let's say, rich people. And there's one nobleman who like, turns up a bit late. And there's this kind of weird monologue that Vincent Price does, which is quite effective, where he explains basically the status difference between them and the nobleman's trying to offer his wife as a gift to gain entry into the castle. Yeah. And Vincent Price uh, basically downplays it as if, because he's already slept with her yeah, and he yeah, wasn't yeah, really yeah. impressed by what she had to <laughs> offer. So that was a, a very funny way of making it sexual without putting the sex on screen. So I like that. Yeah. I mean, uh, Coleman was, he, he was a bit worried about making this film because he thought it, it um, shared a few too many elements with the seventh seal. Sure. A film from Ingmar Bergman. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with that, uh, Dominic? Well, there's an uh, obvious similarity. Yeah. Um, the plague time and the figure of death. Although yeah. in Mask of the Red Death, he's more like the figure of vengeance, really. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, it's a much... I mean, Seventh Seal is a much uh, weightier film, probably. Let's um, say that. Yeah, it is. Oh, yeah, but yeah. there's a place for both of them. Yeah, and yeah. I love both right, of them. The I mean, they're different for me visually because the Seventh Seal has this very crisp black and white photography. Yeah, yeah. And 
the Mosque of the Med Death is a real explosion of colour. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah, it's yeah. the kind of colour that films don't have anymore because no one shoots on 35mm anymore. Yeah. And yeah. Even if they do, they don't shoot like that. Well, why do you... Uh, is, is that because of what um, exp- the expense or just because it's cheaper to do it in different ways now? It's totally the expense. Um, what really killed 35mm wasn't the cameras, it was the um, projection in the cinemas. Oh, okay. Because it seems a shame to kind of lose that from film, because now films look all kind of the same. Yeah. And yet, you know, something like Massacre of the Red Death, it's, it has um, a, a, a series of rooms where you, you go further in. It starts off, I think, with a white room. Yeah. Then the, yellow, no, the yellow. yellow room, then the white, white room, room, then the purple room. And then the black, black one is room. the one you're not supposed to go yeah, into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that when I first saw it, that was the scene that really made it impressive. Impression on me. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I just remember Vincent Price's little speech where he said the nobles locked in the yellow room couldn't even bear to look at the sun when he came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was interesting because when I saw when I saw that scene the first time before we watched it for this episode, I couldn't stop thinking about oh, who's the poor person who ended up getting trapped in the purple room and the black room <laughs> because they must have gone nuts and killed themselves. So it's like I was always um two steps ahead as it were in terms of being in fear of what vincent price's character would do next yeah i mean uh okay let's talk about one of the oddest parts of this film which is the romance between uh, a, a a dwarf and a child <laughs> um <laughs> how did you feel about this i mean let, let, let's just say um the, the child is actually meant to be an adult off, I think, but they yeah. didn't cast that. They cast a child yeah. and gave her a really deep voice. Um, <laughs> Not a deep voice. It was a voiceover of a yeah, yeah, adult yeah. Actress, it was like actress, a, yeah. yeah. Did you think that, that? Did you find that very odd? Like I did. Um, <laughs> for me personally, I felt because of the way Vincent Price had nearly killed the child, the way he tra- treated the villagers of "I'm going to kill somebody, it's either your husband or sorry, your lover or your father." And also getting everyone to act like beasts. It kind of, by the time that character was introduced, because it was a dwarf who was kind of like a jester performing yeah, for the, yeah. the court, as it were. By the time you see who his wife is, I got the impression of initially I thought, oh, she's been cursed, as like she was somehow regressed from her adult form oh, okay. into a child, yeah, oh, right. and that's and and he would only release that couple. And once mm. the uh, the dwarf man had done his bidding, I, I fear the most prosaic explanation is they couldn't find a pretty enough. Ex- uh, dwarf to yeah, there's that as well. But also, I just felt, do you know what? It bought into the idea that uh, he was just a large, powerful figure, and that he was overbearing on anyone who came into contact with. So yeah. he was ultimately powerful, and I think it made it more ironic that one of the noblemen, who was technically one of his rivals, yeah. uh, had to dress up as a bear to kind of for a kind of a later party that was to come to kind of usurp his authority or attempt to usurp his authority. How disturbed were you by that, Dominic? <laughs> I mean, I found it part of the general weirdness and debauchery of yeah. the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, I have read a little bit about the background of the making of the film as well. Yeah. And yeah. I think we would feel very differently about it if it turned out Roger Corman had been one of the shady characters from that era. Yeah, 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 I think, um, yeah. In fact, um, apparently Dane Asher actually praised his professionalism and said he was the perfect gentleman at all times. Yeah. yeah. So knowing that it was a very above board production, 
I think that helps. I would justify that decision to cast a child in there because it does add to the yeah. kind of wheeziness and nastiness and strangeness of the whole thing. Mm. Okay. Uh, well, me, so Roger Corman, so he, he was very proud of his Poe adaptations, a more serious kind of horror. But we're now going to move on to another film that he made. Uh, not that, I mean, only a couple of years uh, before Mask of the Red Death. I'm just check here. Um, 1960, I think. Yeah, 1960, which is Little Shop of Horrors, which is perhaps more famous now because of the mus- 80s musical. Yeah. But this is the... Uh, this, I mean, this is as, as far removed from Mask of Red Death, I think, as you can get within a horror films within Roger Corman's um, oeuvre. Yeah. <laughs> if you see what I mean. Different um, sides of the axis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is very low budget. It's very cheap. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on Little Shop of Horrors? Um, well, with the Little Shop of Horrors, I think what you tend to see or what you're thinking about is you're walking into a stage play yeah more than a film because it nearly entirely takes place in the, the shop or the boutique which it is does. selling these flowers and i get the impression that um this is theater recorded on film and there's obviously a bit of excitement because we get to see jack nicholson in one of his earlier roles so i felt this was more about the performance of the actors bringing a sense of fear and fear, fear, theatricality yeah. to the film, as opposed to we've got this VFX scene and we've got this uh, special effects and we've got gore and we're going to horribly mutilate people. Um, and being attacked by a plant, it seems like um, looking back at it now, considering all of the horror films that have come before, come before after it, it doesn't seem as menacing, but no. I think it's definitely a film that belongs in uh, the bizarre and absurd world of horror. And I think that makes it stand alone and make it more interesting, particularly that it's not the musical. So you've got more time to elaborate on the performances and the backstories of the characters. Apparently uh, the, the, it was written by uh, Charles Griffith, who got his... Uh, idea maybe from Arthur C. Clarke's 1956 story of a reluctant orchid. Mm. Um, how, what did, you, how did you enjoy? Have you seen it before I made you watch it, Dominic? Or? I, I had not seen it before. I'd seen the musical. I'd never gone back to the source material. Okay. And I know the musical only came about because Roger Coleman didn't bother to uh, secure the rights. Okay. Mm. So he doesn't make any money from... From the musical, it doesn't make any money from the musical. It's not like Mel Brooks with the producer. That, <laughs> yeah. The musical just happened without anything to do with him. Okay. Um, did, did you Which enjoy? Which is it? interesting. Apparently, shot and saw Chop of Horrors in two days. Probably forgot about it soon after. Yeah, yeah. it's had this like massive cultural afterlife. But he used to do that. He, he would make films while he was making other films in in like you know just using the same prop, but. You know, and make really low budget films while he was making bigger budget films. He's a jack of all trades. Um, did you enjoy it, the film? I did enjoy it. I was always a fan of the musical, still am. I think it's a, a really funny, well made musical. Yeah. And I do like the story. There's something intriguing about it. <laughs> it's a bizarre story 
that if it's done with the right spirit, just yeah. always works. And, and you know, there is a free song to sing the young Jack Nicholson, and he is reliably crazy. So yeah, I, there is a there is a, a small uh, sequence with Jack Nicholson in playing someone who's uh, with a dentist fetish. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, having his teeth hacked out fetish. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'll check out what if that <laughs> there is, is something philia. Um, there is a specific name for what he's got. Oh right, okay. Is there? Ooh. I mean, he can only really get away with it once, can he? You can. It's a fetish that can only really be. I mean, unless you do one tooth at a time, you can't. It's called odontophilia. Odontophilia is a fetish for sex involving teeth, and it can range from licking a partner's teeth or gently biting their skin to actually removing their teeth, which is, I think he was at the removing their teeth. That's stage. lovely. That's really nice. Um, yeah. <laughs> I think I might need to come off the site where I found that word because there's a lot of strange stuff on that. But what did you think about the naming of his character? Because he was called Wilbur False. Oh, was, was, there, yes, was there kind yes. of a in-joke going on there because of the adaptations? And well, the... well, we've got, let's look at some of the names. We've got Seymour Crowbanoid. Yeah. Boyd. Seymour Crowboyned? Is that a pun? I'll try. Feels it. like it's something I'm missing. Audrey Fulquad. Gravis Mushnick. <laughs> Burson Falk. Winifred Creeboyned. I mean, there's a, there's a, I was just going to say, there's a sort of Jewish humour running throughout the film. Mm. Um, there's a Mrs. Siddy Shiva and a Mrs. Hortense. Bootwanger as well. So I'm guessing there was probably, and there's a Frank Stooley, which might have mean like Frank Poo. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, it seems like there's a lot of um, uh, puns or play on yeah, words yeah. with like uh, naughtiness around the names as well. Or suggestive of that vaguely. And yeah. also they are Jewish names, which is interesting because I think that um, um, he's not himself Jewish, is he? But he's like tapping yeah, into yeah, that yeah. pain of humour. Yeah. yeah, the Borscht Belt, as they called it, the scene that Mel Brooks came out of, and a lot of other comedians of his generation. Sure. So it was actually made on the set for his previous film, which is A Bucket of Blood, which is one of my. It's another odd. It's um, if you, I don't know if it could be a genre, but hippie horror. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Bucket of Blood is about an artist. Well, it's about a group of artists, and then there's one who's a bit like a slower friend of theirs who begins to uh he covers uh people and you know, first of all he takes a stuffed cat and he um pretends that it's a, a statue that he's made and then he ends up doing humans as well okay. but but um the ultra horrors was um uh, made on the same set when he still had access to the set um it's it's a slight film i think that can be said um did Slight film, what do you mean? Yeah, by that? slight film. It's it, it, it's fun to watch. It's good for an hour and twenty minutes. Mm. But I, I was going to say you're not going to watch it over and over again. But then I had an ex girlfriend. It's her favorite. Who had it was her favorite film, and she used to watch it over and over again. So I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong there. Is that because she likes the farcical nature of what the story is? Yeah, 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 yeah. And she was also a big Jack Nicholson fan. So I think that was a a, a thing as well. Um, it's rumoured that the film, that the shooting schedule was based on a bet that Corman could not complete a film within two days. Really? So that's kind of, I like the idea of making oh. a film in two days. That's... So there was a bit of a dogma to yeah. it then. So yeah, yeah. that's that might be one of the decisions why it all takes place on one set then. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. 
Um, you got anything? Any, any anything you want to say about Little Shop of Horrors, Dominic? That you think we should be directed towards? Well, I guess I mean it's almost impossible to pick one Corman film because he made so many. Yeah. Apart yeah. from The Mask of the Red Death, maybe which is a very atypical Corman film because he put a lot more care into that one, and you yeah, can yeah. see the results because it's so much more polished and carefully made than the vast majority of his work. Yeah. yeah. But maybe this is a good example of his more um, quick and fearful style. It is fast, it's irreverent, it's yeah. got a kind of quite specific strain of black humour which runs through a few of his films. And there is a kind of can-do spirit to it as well. Now, if you had to two days to make a film yeah, would you yeah, include yeah. like an animatronic man-eating plant probably not you'd probably save yourself that <laughs> hassle but he goes for it yeah i mean the uh, the, there's a character in little shop of horrors who um likes eating flowers uh, but that, that actor was the star of bucket of blood so he came back for these two days just to play this old little um uh, flower muncher which was i mean i, I think he he seems to be roger corman seems to be kind of a, a definite good guy in the history of cinema someone who's helped a lot of people get into the industry he's he produces so i mean i'm not sure exactly how many directing and producing uh credits and writing credits he's got but it's a lot and he's kind of i mean i think he's basically retired now although i'm not gonna say that for sure because i mean he's only he's a young 95 Actually, speaking of retirements, we do know that Jack Nicholson has retired from acting since 2010, which not a lot of people may have noticed or remembered. Oh, it didn't. It didn't kind of happened anyone. under the radar. Yeah, didn't yeah. Tell anyone? And uh, I, I think he he just bowed out. I think The Departed got his Oscar and then uh, just moved on. But okay. um, Roger Corman, uh, famous for directing, I think Silence of the Lambs, and you've got a producer here with 515 credits. Okay. And in, when it comes to his directorial numbers, he has. Oof. Yeah. Long way down. Um, 56 credits as a director, 44 wow. credits as an actor, only 12 as a writer. And uh, after that, it's one as an art director and in, in various other roles as well. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean. There's so many films to look into with Roger Corman. Uh, one that I would, I don't know if I'd recommend it, but it is a very odd film. If, you, if you're into the odd, odder stuff, is Rock and Roll High School, okay. starring the Ramones, <laughs> as the Ramones, <laughs> just sort of stalking this teenage girl as she goes into the shower and stuff. It's a very strange film. Um, I would, I'd definitely recommend it. Apparently, it's originally going to be, it was a film with Cheap Trick playing the band in it, and Cheap Trick pulled out and they said oh, the Ramones might do it and the Ramones really aren't that sort of band that you'd want to be in your uh, teen <laughs> I just want to say Roger Corman's last film was actually Frankenstein Unbound in 1990 starring John Hurt that's the last Raul film we directed last film he directed yeah okay. and he's really just produced. but he continued to produce afterwards that's yeah. correct so the last probably one, right up until today more or less yeah the last film he's produced uh, which I haven't seen is uh, The Jungle Demon and that was in 2021. Okay then. Well, thank you for joining us for our, our little look at Roger Corman's career and a couple of his films. Uh, thank you, Trevor, for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Dominic, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Been a real pleasure. And uh, uh, that's it for me. And uh, we'll see you soon. And goodbye. <laughs>